0: And um, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Awesome. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome. My name is Christopher, and this is So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, and a podcast. I am joining joined here. I'm so, so excited that I'm tripping over my words here. I'm excited to be joined by Kevin Wilson. Kevin Wilson is the New York Times bestselling author of Nothing to See Here, The Family Fang, and Perfect Little World, as well as the story collections Tunneling to the Center of the Earth, winner of the Shirley Jackson Award, and Baby, You're Gonna Be Mine. He lives in Sewanee, Tennessee with his wife and two sons, and his most recent book is called Now is Not the Time to Panic. And I loved it, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. Kevin, welcome.
1: Oh, man, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here.
0: I discovered your work at the beginning of the pandemic and just read it all in a, in a rush, um, and I, it's just, you've got a wonderful, exciting voice to be lost in, you know, it was the exact thing that I wanted to get lost in, in those beginning months of lockdown.
1: Oh, that's really kind. I'm trying to figure like I kind of write about the same things over and over. So I think I might lose a little something if you read them all at once. You know,
0: (laughs) that is not the case. It's not the case at all. I don't know. You have this generous imagination that I just loved following and it has followed you into this new book. Now is not the time to panic. And I had a fun time trying to figure out a cocktail to make um, inspired by the book. So uh, this is called, I'll show it to you on screen here, this is called Gold Seekers, and it is a mix between sort of two cocktails, the Gold Rush, which is just bourbon, honey syrup, and lemon, Um, but that's also somewhat kind of close to the base of a French 75, except for you would switch gin in for uh, whiskey, but I guess that's actually a cocktail called the Kentucky 75, is to put Prosecco on top of that. So this is basically a Kentucky 75, um, only I'm using honey syrup instead of simple syrup, because I still wanted to get that gold rush in there, because there's this quote in the book that is written on the, written on the poster that sets everything on fire, uh, which, do you mind if I do the quote here just for the for the folks? Oh, yes, please. The edge is the shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives, and the law is skinny with hunger for us. So this is in a skinny glass, uh, and it's uh, it really is delicious. I mean, you can't go wrong with whiskey, honey, and lemon, and then the added Prosecco on top. It just makes this whole thing sort of shine and effervesce, which um, is also the feeling that I get from your prose. So that is the drink. <laughs>
1: God that drink is more impressive than the book. That was incredible. <laughs> oh
0: that is that is not true, but it is nice. I wish I was drinking it alongside you. Do you have a do you have a special drink for the for the recording here?
1: I ne- so I I'm I'm embarrassed to admit that I I almost never drink, but if I do drink, it's it's just bourbon. Mm. Um I'm just um I'm a kind of boring drinker and also we live on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, so it's it's kind of impossible to get You know, if I had a bartender or if I had someone like you, if we were hanging out, who would like actually make something that was that impressive, I would try more. But left to my own devices in our in our little house, it's just bourbon Mm. always. Yeah. Uh, Neat or on the rocks? It's it's neat uh, unless um, I feel like I need more, you know, (laughs) to get the job done. And then and so then We'll usually pour it over, uh, mix it with iced tea and lemonade,
0: mm. um,
1: and that way I feel a little refreshed, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day.
0: Right. Do you have a uh, Do you have a brand that you always go after, or is it just any bourbon?
1: So it was. So the only time I ever lived out of the South, um, I had just moved. I was living in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and for whatever reason, I was super homesick and decided that I was just going to drink a bunch of George Dickel. And that would be the Tennessee whiskey, which I'd never liked before or or really since. Um, But now uh, what we usually get, if it's not bourbon, but Tennessee whiskey is Uncle Nearest, uh, which is the kind of offshoot of Jack Daniel's distillery. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's great. And so typically we try to stay in Tennessee.
0: uh, Yeah. uh, And so I'll drink that. Good bourbon country. Yeah. Well, I am... I <clears throat> I am a I'm I'm definitely a bourbon drinker too a, a lot of the time and uh, it's but I've been obsessed with French 75s recently but this bourbon version of it is a really nice change it's definitely something that I um if you do get fancy sometime I I I recommend
1: I have a feeling I'm going to get fancy almost <laughs> immediately after this podcast <laughs> if I can get all the ingredients
0: bombas mission is simple make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated so when you buy bombas you are also giving to someone in need there's a pair of bombas socks for everything you do they come in tons of options like comfy performance styles made with sweat wicking yarns which means your feet stay cool while the rest of you works up a sweat i have a few pairs of bombas socks they are my absolute favorite sometimes when the laundry's clean they're the first thing i pull out because i'm so excited to wear them and sometimes i'm so excited to wear them that i save them i want to be wearing my bombas socks when it's a special occasion that's the sort of socks that bombas makes and they make all sorts of stuff bombas.com smdb and get 20 percent off your first purchase that's com slash smdb for twenty percent off, bombas. com slash smdb. Now, on with the show. So next up, we uh, we celebrate having. Acquired new things, new books. Um, like I just got um, "Our Wives Under the Sea" by Julia Armfield. Um, I just saw this author that was previously on the show, Megha Majumdar, uh, talking about how much she loved it, and I take her word, you know, as gold. So um, it's just about submarines. It's about someone who was stuck under underwater in a submarine, and after she's come back up uh from this disaster and has lived something happened down there to her wife and so she's sort of dealing with this post-traumatic sub so sub- finally some submarine fiction i've been saying it for years where are all the books set on submarines and julia armfield has has um has filled the void
1: that's incredible and now i feel like man this this wreck is just gonna keep traveling because i've got to check this out now i have not said where are all the submarine novels but now that you've (laughs) mentioned it i do feel like there's a lack you know i I need i need to i need to get into this
0: yeah it's either the hunt for the red october which is like (laughs) you know a tome that gets far too much into the details of how submarines work um, I hope Julia Armfield didn't fall prey to wanting to use all of her submarine knowledge in one place. Uh, and then I also got sent, I'm so excited about these, they they send them every year, uh, Biblioasis, who's a great little publisher. Um, they have gifted me these Ghost Story for Christmas books that Seth designs every year. I'm going to show them to you. They're really cool. I've got A Visit by Shirley Jackson. The Dead and the Countess by Gertrude Atherton and The Corner Shop by Lady Asquith. And we have these really thin, tiny little tomes that are meant to be read by the fireside around Christmas. That used to be part of the Christmas season, was reading ghost stories by the fireside. And so that's what, um, and so I have the entire line now. And I'm super obsessed with it. I think it's really beautiful art and great stories. And I am so excited about these three new volumes.
1: Oh, yeah. I was just about to say those covers are beautiful.
0: Yeah. Seth is such an incredible um, designer. He's also the designer who did all of the um, collected Peanuts books. You know, all of that. Oh, wow. Yeah, all yeah. All of those designs are, are his, too. He's He's great at designing, like, an overall look that can be, like, manipulated for certain volumes. Um, and yeah, I have all of the tomes up and they are, I bring them out as a Christmas decoration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so nice. Yeah. So what about you, Kevin? Have you picked up anything recently, books or otherwise?
1: Yeah, so the thing that I've I've become just completely obsessed with is, um, there's a writer named Luke Geddes, who um, he wrote a novel uh, a few years ago, I think, 20, but it was called uh, A Heart of Junk, uh, and it was about all these kind of ant- at this one antique mall. Um, it's incredibly funny, but also like incredibly heartfelt and and lovely. And, and I've gotten to know him a little bit, and um, he just uh, released uh, this 120-page zine uh, mm-hmm. that's called TV Grime, and it's in the format of a TV guide. Um, and it's an A to Z guide to Halloween TV episodes. Oh my God! Uh, from his childhood and adolescence, where he reviews, kind of trying to remember uh, when he watched them, uh, and so it's this like just incredibly beautiful, um, kind of weird little experimental memoir where you're getting this larger sense of him through these like incredibly corny halloween episodes like the boy meets world halloween episode or 30 rock yeah i mean a uh, third rock from the sun and and uh i've just become obsessed with it and my my oldest son griff has for whatever reason found some of my old zines and got really into it and little by little i was like let's see what other zines are out there and luke has made this thing and it it's it's beautiful like the amount of work
0: that went into creating it is just astounding that is so cool i i love zine world um when you go to like a good you know, like zine fest it's all of the most exciting i remember there was someone who did all these pizza reviews and they made <laughs> a tiny origami pizza box to put their reviews in that was like so such a gorgeous piece of of thing that was just like a, a mini memoir about pizzas they'd eaten recently <laughs> um, i just think
1: I, I, have, I you know i grew up in the mid 90s and i would just you know i would get i would buy these zines i would send money in an envelope and get some random thing from like wisconsin and and i've held on to some of them and uh it's it, and it, again, like the moment I opened up Luke's Zine, it kind of transported me back to that uh, that feeling of of adolescence where you have no idea what you're what you're going to experience, but but you really want it.
0: I'll uh, I'll co-sign Heart of Junk. That is such a great novel, Luke's Luke's book. It's uh it's actually also suspenseful, along with being like quite funny. Um, that the added suspense of the of the murder that's lurking in the background of that book is so, so good. And he's got like, you know, it's multiple
1: character POVs, and sometimes you worry about those kind of big, expansive, but because it's all centered around this, this antique mall, um, it intersects in such kind of incredible ways. And you're right, there is this kind of mystery at the heart of it, um, but it still has all this space to to develop these characters that in anybody else's hands i think would have they've been caricatures Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i i've been thinking about that barbie collector for a long long time (laughs) it's so funny that you're talking about zines and talking about handmade things because that is at the center i mean uh zeke and frankie are are I mean, they made a cover for a zine in a way that um, sets their town on fire, I guess. Um, and yeah, now is not the time to panic. Tell our listeners here what it's what it's about.
1: Yeah, so now is not the time to panic is uh, about a, a woman who's uh, when the story begins. She's in her mid thirties. She has a kid. She has a husband. She's got a pretty good life as a as a uh, kind of young adult novelist. Um, And then out of nowhere, she gets a call from a reporter who references this weird pandemonium that was created in the small town where Frankie grew up. And she has figured out, the reporter, that Frankie was responsible, or at least one of the people responsible. And so this sends Frankie into the past, obviously, to go back to this one summer in 1996 in Coalfield, Tennessee, where she met this boy for the summer, Zeke. And the two of them created this weird poster that unintentionally created this intense panic that that kind of, you know, was viral in in that time period. And so she's trying to like look at the past to see which, you know, how did I get from point A to point B? How did I become the person that I was gonna become because of this one summer? And ultimately she wants to track down that boy who she never saw again after that summer to let him know Hey, some people have found out.
0: It is so heartfelt, but there's this sort of dread that's at the center of this book. Like, dread drives it. She's worried that, about what will happen, even though that is never fully defined, or it's not like she's like, I know exactly what would happen if I came forward. Can you talk about writing uh, dread as like a, sen- a central mechanism for a book?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I think uh, that's really, you know, lovely as a, as an explanation and maybe not uh, you know, something I've I've spent a ton of time figuring out how I do it, but for, for me it's, you know, I'm 44 years old and I have kids and every we also I live in the same county where I grew up. So my children are like, you know, they're in the same single film movie theater that I was in when I was their same age. So you get this weirdness of like memory on top of memory you're watching them experience these things and it's it pulls you into the past and so i wanted to write about that which is you know you make a life for yourself and you know that there are these huge moments from your past but for the most part you they're hidden they're they're not known to the people in your current life right and there is some fear that like oh if i dredge this stuff up or if i if i let somebody know that these were the moments that made me who i am it might call into question the kind of person that that I've become. And I don't know. I think there's there's something both really lovely about nostalgia from for the past, but there's also something that's so seductive that it can kind of ruin you if if you try to live in it or you try to spend too much time or try to hold on to that thread. And I think that's what creates the dread, is that you keep following that line back into the past, even though you know there's a danger that you could be ruined by it.
0: I got that sense so strongly, but even so, like it's not it's not dreadful i mean there's <laughs> there's i think w- what sort of drives that is that like she keeps finding sort of unexpected joy like she's not she doesn't realize how much you know pushing all that down has caused her to not be able to experience some of the great highs of that time, but that's teenagers <laughs> can you talk about writing? These teenagers, the creation of Frankie and Zeke, and and this time period.
1: Yeah, so the story is set in the in the mid '90s, and it's also set in a really rural town in Tennessee, which is you know, I was a teenager in the mid '90s, and I grew up in a really rural town in Tennessee. And I mean, I I'm, I'm always interested in in adolescence, you know, that the because you know the first time something happens to you no matter what, you're going to ascribe meaning to it in a way that the 10th or 11th time that it happens to you, you don't. Um, But I think also I wanted to write this book about what it feels like to be uh, in a rural space before the internet, which is this feeling of growing up in the middle of nowhere and you want something beyond what you have, but you have no real sense of how you can get it. And also stuff comes to you out of chronology you know like and I think in the book I mentioned like you know you may hear Green Day on the radio in Huntsville and you know that you've missed everything that made that understandable right so then Mm -hmm. you start like working backwards and maybe like you had a cousin who had a black flag CD and you heard that and you're trying to like figure out all the pieces and I think a lot of times being an adolescent is about knowing there are gaps and things you don't know. And the terror of what have I missed? How did how do I like pull all these things together? But also living in a rural space where you don't have access is you just know there are people that have things that you don't. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to like build your life, you realize that you're working from a lack, you know? So so for me, these teenagers so much of their their life is just an exploration of or making peace with or figuring creative ways around that lack you know mm-hmm. if i can't have the thing that i wish i had i'm going to have to make some strange mutated version of it and that's what i'll you know that's what i'll have
0: do you feel like the internet has filled in that lack now
1: i mean in some ways yeah for sure i mean oh my god if i had been 16 and I mean, just basic things like being able to hear music at all, you know, instead of having to like track it down in old record shops and like searching and knowing that you might not even have enough money to ever hear this record. Uh, and really and truly, like there were no bookstores where I lived. I would drive two hours to Nashville just to go to a tower books and try and find anything, you know, and so the Internet. Uh, For better or for worse, you know, I don't want to I know there are things that are bad about it, but just being able to say, oh, I can see this. Mm -hmm. I can I can read about it. I can have access to it is huge, you know, and and it can make up in some ways for the fact that you don't have immediate access um, right right in front of you. You
0: can at least search for it. Mm. So how did it feel then to be writing in this play, the the pre-internet? place i mean it seems like it could be pleasant because it's like oh, i don't have to i can keep it small
1: yeah not, nothing's easier than writing in the 90s i mean like uh, there's you lose so much conflict intention the minute the internet or phones or credit cards you know it's really hard to have some of the conflict intention um uh, you know, my last book was about kids who spontaneously combust. And I was like, if anyone had a phone that could take video, you know, it would have completely changed how I wrote the story. So I kind of love that space, you know, where there is a little bit of instability and lack, which forces you to figure out ways to to kind of get the narrative where you need it to go.
0: That last book, um, Nothing to See Here, which is, Wonderful, by the way. I, I really love oh, that novel. You. And I and I I also think it's exciting that so many people seem to have responded to it because to me it is it is sort of a weird book that really a lot of people find connections to. I think that's really exciting and very cool. Um, but that book sort of lives in that I don't know, Amy Bender-esque slipstream, just outside of of our reality but still dealing with the reality of our world but now is not the time to panic is definitely hard line it seems our world was that a reaction to being in the sort of slipstream uh world before and and now you wanted to sort of stick stick in reality
1: well that's at first i just want to say that amy bender is like the queen of writing for me, like I, 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 she, she influenced me 100%, you know, there's just so many ways that I can connect my work to hers. And I just love it. But one of the things for me is like, nothing to see here is a really is a really short book. And, and that's in some ways how the conceit can can sustain itself without falling apart. But also, I needed that conceit, Like those kids are so busy bursting into flames that I knew they couldn't do much work in the book, you know, so I needed a main character where there was almost a second narrative going on that I could play with. Um, And so I just know sometimes there are limits to that that magic or weirdness if you try to stretch it out too far. And with this book, again, I'm thinking about the rurality and these weird kids in the middle of nowhere. Is that I didn't really want there to be magic, you know, I wanted them to be these kind of alchemists that had to make it entirely on their own, you know, and because they have no idea what they're doing. This is the weird kind of magic that that happens in the book, right? This The spread of this strange little poster that they make, um, but it's entirely organic. It, it's mm-hmm. their world.
0: Let's talk about the poster. The creation of, first of all, describing an artwork to create, like, and then having that be, you know, a co-creation with your reader because the reader has to do some work in imagining what this poster is. And you know, if you had a high school project, everyone would turn in a different poster, even though you they'd have the same sort of descriptions. Um, can you talk about creating this? work of art for, to center a book around.
1: Yeah. So it's actually like a couple of people have actually sent me drawings of what they imagine the poster to be. And it's really lovely and wonderful. And for the most part, I think it's, you know, it makes sense to me. Uh, One thing is that I always imagine it to be sideways. So like an eight by 10, but sideways, you know, so it stretches out long. So you get the, but I think there's a couple of things that I thought about. One is uh, the, the kind of outsider artist and writer Henry Darger um the Vivian girls um I was thinking a little bit of his kind of kind of writing drawing you know um he actually has a painting that I I don't know that it's not like one of his major works because it doesn't feature the Vivian girls but it's these hovering hands and I've just always thought of them um and I just thought you know that the poster is a kind of outsider art it's kind of scratchy it's 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 just ink um not, you know, not super detailed. Um, And I think it's that primitive nature that makes it a little scary to an outsider who sees it, who doesn't know what it is. But yeah, in my head, it's just always those words, uh, the hands, uh, and then these kind of thin telephone lines connecting these kind of broken down buildings. And then the stars, which is, which is the speckles of their own blood when they do a blood oath. And, 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 you know, those things are so interchangeable after that, but, you know, it's always, it's been in my head for so long that even when I tried to describe it, I felt like, oh, I've, I'm just going to be super rudimentary about this because I can't quite figure out how detailed it should be.
0: Mm. I was thinking about this in the terms of um <laughs> that movie, uh, That Thing You Do, and oh, nice. how that movie doesn't work without that song being Fantastic. Like it has to be like a full hit song that you believe that could catapult a band. And I, you know, I personally found found that to be very successful. Um, but that's in the center of this. It's that same sort of thing. It has to work on that level. And so w- was there any, I mean, worry about that or drafting that you had to rethink it?
1: Yeah, well, first, I just want to say, I can't believe that you mentioned that thing you do. <laughs> because, like, literally two weeks ago, my wife and I were talking about that movie, because I was humming, a, I think it's Fountains of Wayne, maybe that, that one of the guys from that that wrote the, and I was humming, and she's like, who is that? I was like, you don't know Fountains of Wayne. I was like, oh, they, they one of them, I think, wrote the song for that thing you do. And I was like, it's just such a perfect song. <laughs> um, But you're right, like, that movie doesn't work if that song's not. And And I just think. Uh, fiction and uh, text can be a little more forgiving like because Mm. books are always a contract with the reader that you you know it's a two it it requires both of you 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 are um, the signal you send out the signal but it does not matter until it reaches a receiver right like that's the way that it works so I always know that I'm relying in some ways on, on the reader to help me get there right Mm -hmm. especially with kind of imagistic stuff and I wanted all I knew was I was going to be rudimentary bare bones about it because no matter what the reader does to imagine the image itself I just wanted it to be clear that it's stark and not particularly well done or like professional looking Uh um that's all that matters to me right is that it's a drawing that because it's ink and because it's not super detailed That's what creates the kind of discomfort when people see it everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not advertising. It's not slick enough, right? And so it's not a billboard. um, They can't figure out if it's a band poster because no one's ever heard of any of this. So again, it's that it's the lack of specificity that makes, I think, the poster scary. So, you know, I'm asking the reader to do that work.
0: That's that's so cool, and I, I appreciate as a reader, that sort of trust that we'll get there—you know—I think that that's so important, and it's something that I feel like the slipstream authors, even though this isn't, um, but other work of yours is does like, I really feel like that's one of the things that makes Amy Bender's books sort of magical. Is it's that co-creation of magic? Um, do you have any other inspirations on that level of the Amy Bender level? Well, I mean, the kind of—I mean, my 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 kind of.
1: Magical realist parents are George Saunders and Amy Bender. And both of them, I think Amy Bender is more uh, aligned with what I'm trying to do, right, where she's like, my boyfriend is experiencing reverse evolution. But we're not getting huge specifics. You know, there are big leaps in that that you're filling in for her. And I kind of like that because when you're a normal person in a world of magic, things are hard to describe. There's Mm -hmm. no real language for it. And so I like that lack of specificity. You know, the other for me is Kelly Link, which uh, I just I just think she's brilliant. I love everything that she's ever written. But there are times where I'm like, I do not know what the hell is going on in this particular moment. You know what I mean? Um, But but and I would almost never say this, but it works because those characters are kind of stuck in a Mm -hmm. moment of like where where things have gotten bizarro in a way that it's just kind of impossible to fully articulate it and so to my mind that really works whereas i think saunders is kind of hyper specific you know like yeah. the theme parks how they work and i really love that stuff too uh, but i'm not a, i don't have maybe the imagination quite to do that i like a more a more practical magic
0: since i encountered your work altogether on a rush um I have a particular idea of the of the complete Kevin Wilson collection, but now I'm curious. You know, with this new novel, how do you feel like the Kevin Wilson library is coming together? Uh, from when you were first thinking about being a writer to now, you know how how do you feel that your books are stacking together? Oh, that's interesting. And
1: honestly, it's hard for me to say. Um, partly because, you know, I have two collections of stories, and then I'll have these four novels, and To my mind, I think I can chart the novels a little more easily because the short stories are happening over a much broader range of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say like my stories, I think, have evolved in that my short stories, the first collection were almost entirely magical conceits. And the second collection is there is still magic, but not as much. And I think something that's happened to my work a little bit is that I used to be obsessed with like normal people in a world of magic, you know? What happens when something bizarre happens and your world is magical? And then I just think it's aging, but I just started to realize that the world's not very magical, <laughs> you know? It's like <laughs> super boring in so many ways, but, but the magic and the weirdness and the strangeness is housed inside of people. And so then I started to think about, well, what happens when the weirdness is the person trying to navigate a normal world? And I actually think it's harder for someone with weirdness inside of them, something strange, something magical, to navigate the real world than it is for a normal person to navigate a world of magic.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: that's how that has changed a little bit. the novels, they're less thematically. Uh, it's just more that like, I'm figuring out a little bit about leaning into the humor a little bit more leaning into the absurdity a little bit more but also just getting crazy compression by writing shorter novels (laughs) Um, you know perfect perfect little world at one point was like a 500 page book about babies and my editor was just like that is too many pages about babies you know (laughs) and it was just so hard for me to write that book because i was like there's so many characters it takes place over 10 years I was really struggling to hold all the pieces together. I'm still proud of it. Like it's not, I'm not saying this. I'm just saying it was a harder book for me to write because I was just having to keep track of so much. And so nothing to see here and now is not the time to panic were both responses to that where I was like, I never want to be in that situation again where I've got to cut you know, 200 pages out of a book. I'm going to just lean into constraint and compression And that's where I think I can do some of my best work is, is that if I, if I really hold on to constraint, if I say, hey, you've only got this much space. Once I know those parameters, I just need to know the size of the box. And once I know the size of the box, then I have a little bit easier time doing the work that I need to do. So I just think, you know, my books are getting smaller, uh, you know, usually like, In both of those books, like I don't even want my characters to leave the house, you know, like I'm trying (laughs) to get them to just never go anywhere. I'm like only a summer, you know, like I don't want a lot of time. And part of that might just also be that like as my life expands and as I get older, um, there's something kind of lovely about being able to control the story in my head, the fictional story in a way that my life as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, it's harder to control. Whereas when I was young, you know, I, I felt like, oh, man, there's just so much possibility and so many things that I want out of this life that I wanted my work to be expansive because I wanted to kind of test out how far I could go with stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And now
1: I'm like, oh, the world is too big for me. Let me make this small little thing that that can help me kind of navigate things.
0: That resonates strongly with me. <laughs> and. I do think it's um affecting possibly uh your endings. I'd love to know how you feel about ending things and and approaching the ending of a book because I do feel like nothing to see here and um now is not the time to panic have these sort of interesting ellipses endings where I am fully in charge of the ending as as the Mm -hmm. reader i feel
1: yeah oh that's great yeah so i think there's a couple of things one is like um i think i'm i'm trying to figure out like if you stretch out any story long enough it ends badly because you die right (laughs) so like so for me um what i'm always trying to figure out now is like my job is to try to get a character from point a to point b safely Like, how do I convey them from the beginning to the end and they're still alive, right? Um, And the way that I drop them off at the end is all I'm searching for is a moment of grace. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to find that that moment where I'm like, okay, I got you from here to here. Here is that moment of grace that maybe can help you kind of figure out where the rest of your life goes. And then that's that because the longer that story goes, that like, you know, not just, sp- but like, in nothing to see here, like, taking care of fire children is never going to be easy. It will be <laughs> awful a lot, you know, um, and I can't, there's no way around that. So I don't want to stretch it out so far that I have to restart the narrative, you know, um, you've got to figure out that sweet spot where you've gotten them through a conflict, and you know, there is more to come, but you can at least stop it. And I feel like it's like that with, Now is not the time to paint, too, where I'm trying to convey this character to a moment where they've made some peace, but it hasn't ended, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think some of this goes back to Jennifer Egan and Visit from the Goon Squad, which to my mind is just like one of the most beautiful books I've ever read, just one of the most incredible books. And it's all about time, right? And so much of that book is characters trying to make peace with the fact that time is never going to stop, you know? And there's a moment in it where Stephanie says to her brother Jules she says i just feel like everything is ending and Jules says it is it absolutely is but not yet and that resonated with me so much where i was like oh yeah okay can i get to this point where it's like yes there is still the possibility for reinvention there's still the possibility for grace even in the face of the the you know inescapable fact that that it is ending mm-hmm. and for and I don't know, that becomes kind of fun for me. And it becomes a kind of act of care for the characters. Like I really wanna try as hard as I can to get them safely from point A to point B. And sometimes you can't, and you have to make your peace with that. But if I can, I'm gonna look at all the options to try to figure out how can I I convey them to where I want them to go.
0: I think I was partially reacting to because your novels and your short stories are so different, because I do feel like, you know, when you've got a story like in Tunneling to the Center of the Earth about um, the the, the Renta grandma service, which is a great conceit, a wonderful idea for a short story, but also a t- the type of short story that I could imagine being a novel, like I could see more happening in it, but I also felt like there was a guiding principle of like are there interesting questions to be answering here like what other interesting questions about this world do i have and that's not exactly what drives the novels it's not like do i have more interesting questions because yeah you can you can go forever it's a a novel there's no one telling you to stop because there's you could go as long as you want they'll print it in (laughs) volumes if they really like you um so are are there deleted scenes? Are there things that you, you you realize you wanted to, you know, in the perfect little world way that you kind of want you went further, but then dialed back?
1: No, I think so much of it is me like saying, uh, don't don't let it get to that point. Uh, so so the thing with nothing to see here, not to get like too into it, but like I wrote that book super fast, just just un- I'm faster than I've ever written anything. And I'd, all, I'd been thinking about it for a couple of years. So obviously, like I had it in my head and then I wrote it over over the course, pretty much over the course of about 10 days. And it was just wow. so fast. And and so there were moments as I was writing where I was just editing in my head because there was a moment where I was like, in my head, I'd always imagined that there were going to be these two paranormal researchers that were going to come to the estate and mm. observe the children And I remember I was getting closer and closer to the possibility where they would need to appear. And I just, in my head, I was like, Kevin, that is at least 50 pages, (laughs) you know? And I was like, you can't have it. Like, can you make it work without it? In my head, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I wanted more flashbacks with Madison and Lillian, but I was like, I think you just get one. You know, like at the very beginning, like, "Can can you make the story work? And each time I asked myself the question, like, can you do without it? almost always the answer was yes. And I think that's just how my brain was working to get me to the end. And so with Now is Not the Time to Panic, it was a lot of that same feeling like, oh, there are all these possibilities of how I could expand upon it, what I wanted to do with it. But I just kept thinking like, keep it small, keep it contained, keep it in your hands. And um, the ending was way different. Uh, I don't wanna like, but it was way different And so I had to completely rewrite it, but it was no difference in terms of space, right? (laughs) Like, uh, I I think now, like, one of the things that really comforts me is saying here is, like I said, this is the size of the box Mm -hmm. and you can do whatever you want within those parameters, but make sure it fits in that box. And that's super calming to me because my, you know, my life is slightly chaotic with like kids and teaching that if if I don't have those parameters in place, it can be a little overwhelming to get the work done.
0: Mm. How has teaching affected your work?
1: I've been teaching for as long as I've been uh, publishing, you know, so uh, the thing I'll say is like, um, it's really helpful. One is just because your students um, are constantly pushing you to further explain these things that are really just instinctual, you know, that in my head, a lot of why I do what I do is instinctual. And these kids require me to try to like, tie that instinct to like actual craft. So it's made me a more thoughtful writer, because I'm a little better explaining what I do, because I'm trying to help them figure out what they're doing. And then the other thing always is, though, I think I would still do this anyways, but I want to always find new work to work with my students, to show them here is the absolute new stuff that's out right now that can impact your own writing. And so it's always forcing me to look for new texts and uh, kind of explore what's out there, because I want to bring that back to the students. And Mm -hmm. so that's been really helpful for me, too. I, I think I would read that much anyways, but it forces me to take it back into the classroom and then over the course of like several weeks really inspect those books in ways that are a a lot more thoughtful than I might do otherwise, but also get to listen to the students. And so, you know, there are books that just, just, just completely open up because I've got, you know, my responsibility to the students and they have a responsibility to me to look at it. it's really lovely. And where Mm -hmm. else can you get that in life, except, you know, book clubs, but oftentimes they don't. Well, maybe my students don't read the books either, but they're doing a great (laughs) job of making it sound like they have.
0: Right. Right. I mean, it's it's sort of great to be like, I'm running a really, really cool book club. Yeah, (laughs) in some
1: ways, since I'm not a great teacher, that is kind of what it is.
0: Well, you brought me a book. uh, Blair Braverman's *Small Game*, and I'm curious what what brought this one to mind when I was asking for a recommendation.
1: Oh yeah, well one is that it's it's about to come out, and I've been so excited because I read it, you know, um, uh, pre-publication, and it's just you know it's cool to read books pre-publication, and it you know I, I like giving blurbs, and it's a neat thing to be a part of that. But you can't really talk to anybody about the book. You know, no one's read it. And so I'm excited about this one. And so just for a couple of reasons, one is I Blair Braverman's first book was a memoir called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. And it is just one of the most unique and beautiful books I've ever read. It's it's you know, it's about her through uh, her college years into adulthood, you know, putting herself in these really inhospitable spaces in in the iciest parts of Norway in Alaska and you know like uh and usually in male-dominated spaces trying to make a place for herself and trying to see like how she can like survive in these inhospitable places and it's just such a beautiful book and I've just always loved it and then when I found out she had a novel coming I was like oh okay what's what's this going to be like how will she shift that that voice into a novel and small game is like it really is a kind of thriller it's a kind of critique and commentary on uh modern like media and reality shows but like it's just so propulsive like i really did read it in one sitting i could not stop thinking about it it's basically this character mara she is approached she runs this she helps uh teach like the survival school where she's basically just working with like rich guys who want to like spend the night outdoors, but um, she gets approached to join this this new TV show called Civilization, where it's her and four strangers for six weeks where they have to basically survive in a in a completely unmade space and. You know, Braverman's great at like working with the elements of a thriller, like each character is a type, you know, there's like a grizzled outdoorsman, there's like this kind of naive Eagle Scout. But the minute she knows that she can pull those into the world of this kind of thriller, this kind of outdoor thriller, uh, then she adds the depth, which is what she was so good at in the memoir, right? These characters expand, uh, they get more complicated, and it's just such a fascinating book that really the darkness creeps into it and it's just hard to stop until you know where you're going to end up. I, mm-hmm. I just couldn't love it more.
0: Yeah, I I listened to it, which was also really nice. Um, oh, cool. Uh, Kristen C. narrates the um, audio book and I thought that that was... It's a great way to experience the book because it is like a a first person. It's third person close, so you really feel like you're really in it with um with Morrow. And uh, oh, I've got to
1: listen to it now. I'm really excited to, to listen to it that way.
0: I uh, I was sort of blown away too because I uh, there's something about a when I see reality television as like part of a novel. There's something about it that gets my hackles up because. I just think that it's really hard to do. It's really hard to make that compelling, um because what you're always doing when you're watching a reality television program is like thinking of like what are these people thinking while they're doing these? So if you can actually like bring those things out and do it, it can be incredibly compelling. But often, when I was reading things on submission that would be in reality television world, i w- it would just be they they couldn't capture that thing that is at the center of this where it's not just survival, it's how survival is filmed. And I feel like Blair Braverman seems to know that so intimately of just like, here's how someone would compose the shot of survival versus what do you actually need to do in this situation to make sure you live to see another day.
1: That's awesome. And I'm so I am someone who, Really and truly, I have I have not watched reality TV at all. Like, I think the last thing I watched was when I was voting nonstop for Clay Aiken on the second season of American (laughs) Idol. Like, that's that's the only time I've ever been invested in reality TV. Um, so I I don't like. But it's what was interesting to me is that it's impossible for that world and the structures of reality TV to bleed into your consciousness, right? Because it's just inescapable. And you're right. Like, I think one of the cool things that Braverman does is like she embraces the idea of reality television, and yet she's doing it in these kind of interesting ways that kind of open it up for me um, and and made it, you know, just just kind of propulsive.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think about the last one that I read, which was i, I a long, long time ago, uh, Lost and Found by Carolyn Parkhurst which I read because I so loved her book Dogs of Babel. Um Oh yeah. But it's about a a mother-daughter team in like a sort of uh uh the great race or the amazing race. It's sort of like oh, they yes, have to travel yes, okay. everywhere. And what that what I think helps for this book is that the um the reality television side of it, you know, sort of in the plot has to fall away. And I think that then they have to kind of think about what, what would they be filming now? You know, they, they can't get it out hmm. of their minds, which is so, um, I don't know. I, 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 felt like I was witnessing like the sickness of, of being always <laughs> viewed, um, seep out of them over the course of the pages. Oh, I
1: like that. Yeah, yeah that's awesome.
0: Are you a survivalist? Is this um, have you? I mean, you're out in Tennessee in your on your mountain. Um, how did you feel about the the nature side of this?
1: Oh well, I think partly, and that might be why it resonates so f- much for me as a kind of propulsive thriller is because I'm I'm, um, terrified of the natural world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we live we live in the like on a on a pond. We used to live in a cabin in the woods, but um, I I think survivalist stuff is interesting to me because I'm um, I'm not interested in it. uh I'm I have no real uh desire uh if the world shifts in a way that it requires that level of commitment to surviving I just kind of know about myself that I'm not willing to do th- to put in that work. Uh I think about it all the time. It's such a dark w- we w- I, you know and I and I teach it a lot uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road and there's a moment where the the man and his wife there's a huge flash they know something's happening, and he immediately plugs up the bathtub and starts filling it with water because he need, knows that they're going to need water and the wife is just like ah, I'm not interested in this at all and my wife and I talk about it a lot where she's like oh I would strap the kids to my back and I would grab an axe and I would you know I would do everything possible and I think that I would just get a book and sit in the room with no lights you know and that would be that i would just wait because i just i don't have that thing in me and so i think that's what made this this book also just really interesting is what happens when the playing at survivalist stuff becomes real Mm -hmm. you know and then what does that mean when these things that you've always practiced and there's something calming about learning those skills when it actually means the difference between living and dying what happens to those things
0: yes and there's something else too that she gets at that i think is sort of what lifts this from i, I don't know i think that you might think that it needs lifting because it's about reality television like right, feel right. like, um but <laughs> the, the the thing that which is I, I don't know why i'm like fighting with my own self here but um but there's this theme of like planning to survive the worst versus planning to thrive in the worst of times like what wow, would it be like really to lovely. and i thought that that was so cool is that it's like it's not just like how can we make it to the next day but like how can we make it worthwhile <laughs> <laughs> to want like that. that and and i think that that was so i mean she she really that's that's a, a long walk that she's always on and i um i i that was really Something that I was really connecting to,
1: man. i I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about this book. Like I feel like when I go back to reread it, i'm I'm gonna bring all this stuff. Like it will really I don't know. I've been excited for that moment when I can go back into it.
0: well, this is a good time for me to be reading this because I just spent the summer revisiting basically all my favorite um childhood survival fiction that i really loved i i reread (laughs) my side of the mountain and hatchet and uh the island of the blue dolphins by scott o'dell oh my god yes all of these novels have this fantastic underlying socialist message which i appreciate um but i i also was thinking uh while i was reading this about the bear by claire cameron which is sort of um is also a survivalist novel but it's sort of um like Room by Emma Donahue, if it was a oh, survival yeah. novel because it's about a five-year-old and his, her two-year-old brother surviving after their parents are killed by a bear. Um, oh, my God. An amazing novel and, and, you know, incredible that she could have. It's ex- extremely short because it's like 220 pages of a five-year-old's um, experience of survival. Um, so I, I love this type of book and this is a great um entry in the survival canon and i now i'm sort of curious about going and reading some more of these reality television novels because <laughs> i feel like there's like a canon there that i'm I, I don't know if this is like fulfilling or um subverting the the tropes
1: i like the way that it seems like sometimes you read to get like a body of work to get a collective sense of how these books all fit together and i i like doing that as well you know um um so that's really cool i'm I'm interested in that i'd love to hear how the other reality no- reality show novels work out for you
0: yeah well we'll see <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah i i am so glad you recommended this to me and uh i would love to know if you recommend what else you recommend? It's it's time for the recommendation section of the show. Yeah.
1: So it's so weird because when you said bear, it made, so like I too, like um, you know, a few years ago I read um Rachel Ingall's Mrs. Caliban, you know, which is about a like a housewife who who meets and falls in love with this like fish man who has escaped from this facility and they have a romance, you know, and it's this really odd really short little novella like book and it's just so brilliant and so amazing. And right after that I, I read Melissa Brodeur, I think that's uh The Pisces, where mm-hmm. a woman falls in love with the merman and it's a much darker book. But so I was like, God, God, there's a lot of books with you know people falling in love with like animal people. And so then uh just this year, I read a novel by a Canadian author, uh Marion Engel. And this book was published in seventy, like eight or seventy six, but it's called Bayer, and it's about a lonely archivist who goes to northern Ontario and has falls in love with a Bayer. Uh, and so I'm just like, God, this is a, this is a much more heavily populated genre than I thought it was. Um, and so that's been kind of interesting. And from her that book, I've done a little bit more trying to find like books by Canadian authors who I really don't know, you mm-hmm. know, never read. And so from from Marion Engel, I, I went and started reading a bunch of um, uh, Gwendolyn McEwan, And she had this novel that she wrote when she was 18 called Julian the Magician. I just really love it's like a fever dream of a novel. And so that's been really fun for me. And then the only other thing I'll recommend is just because I was actually talking to a friend um, maud newton about this today Mm. Uh, but maud told me about this like six seven years ago this this writer and i'm gonna get her name wrong i think it's theodora keogh who was the granddaughter of teddy roosevelt Mm. and she wrote in the 50s just the most bizarre pulp novels just so strange so weird very transgressive and she was like you should check her out because we both love pulp and so i read like these. They're all like weird names, like the fetish or the tattooed heart, you know, and there's a lot of weird stuff. But then uh, just recently, every time I go to like used bookstores, I'll search for her, these signet editions. And I found her first novel, which is called Meg.
0: Hmm. And
1: um, and it's interesting because it's the only I think this is right. The only book by a woman that Patricia Highsmith reviewed favorably. Uh, oh. and, and she was just like, yeah, this is really incredible. And it's just such a strange little pulpy book that like, honestly, when I read Theodora Keo, I'm like, oh, this would work. This is what would be hot. People would be reading it right now. It feels a little like Otessa Mosfegh, you know, like there's yeah. there's these really interesting, wildly transgressive things. And these are books written in the 50s. I just really love reading them. They're really short, really propulsive, really bizarre.
0: Wow. I need to get into, I feel like there's probably all sorts of wonderful covers and things to get into too if you get, if you get deep. That sounds great. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into Theodora Keogh. Uh, I just finished this nonfiction book that I, I, I love when you find a nonfiction book that reads like a novel. You know it's it's the best and this one is called the feather thief by uh, kirk w johnson have you read this one
1: no but i think i read an article that might have started it or an article about it
0: yeah yeah it's this great story about it starts with fly fishing and just two guys telling fish stories and being like you know there's a guy that got so obsessed with fly fishing feathers that he started robbing (laughs) robbing places of their feathers to sell online and like that's just like one small part of this crazy story about who that guy and and how he got into it and he was this uh, sort of prodigy at at making these victorian fly um fly fishing flies you know like they really are supposed to they use very particular types of feathers in the old manuals and so to get those feathers most of them are either um you know endangered or there's just no way to get the feathers legally anymore. So people are always in estate sales looking for like women's hats because that's one way you can find oh. the these vintage feathers and you get these great great details like that that you know will fuel your next dinner party conversation. Uh but it was it's It's one of these great stories that if you were, if it just said a novel on it, you'd believe like, oh yeah, that's a novel, but it's, this is a, this is a true story.
1: I love, I mean, I love, I love anything about kind of a single minded obsessiveness, you know, like people that kind of put their whole identity into this kind of strange thing. So I, I really want to check that out.
0: And I, of course. Well, maybe not, of course, but I, I absolutely and highly recommend your new novel. Now is not the time to panic. It is, it is a fantastic... I read it in, in one sitting, and it was a lovely sitting. I, I just think it's it's a really propulsive, exciting, and thoughtful book. And I I strongly suggest you go out and pick up a copy as soon as possible, listener.
1: And make that drink.
0: <laughs> yeah, make the drink to enjoy... <laughs> make the gold secret you can find all the recipes and every book that we've mentioned on so many damn books.com and look for the episode i list everything there and uh, you can also support the show if you want uh, patreon.com slash smdb Um, or if you just want a sticker that says so many damn books you can buy one I, i i put that up on the website too uh kevin thank you so much for hanging out with me this has been a blast and i i am so glad i found your work
1: oh man i was just going to say it's been a blast (laughs) it was so much fun